the inside of the bulletin. This is Luke 20. Um, Luke 20. It's actually 19 through 26. Luke 20, 19 through 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Now, after the service, um, uh, uh, it's a very important, I have one small announcement before I begin my sermon, which is if you know the score of the Rafael Nadal match against Roger Federer, you dare not say it to me, okay? This is a sin that I cannot absolve you of. You are doomed to perdition if you give me uh, that. It's, as a tennis aficionado, it's very exciting to see Rafa back in the mix and, uh, uh, you know, the, the clashes of old, Rafael Nadal and uh, Roger Federer. You know, these guys are kind of, they're heroes of mine. Uh, Rafa in particular. I love Rafa's work ethic. You know, his dad makes him carry his own bags. His uncle Tony, who's his coach, he has to carry his own bags. You know, he'll fly coach. Uh, you know, he's just a hardworking guy who's out there and he's fought his way back to play. Um, he's a hero of mine. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I sometimes ask my kids, well, who's your hero? And, uh, you know, they, sometimes they're scratching their head. I'm at a bit of a loss who my hero is. Uh, we live in an age where increasingly there are less and less people to call heroes. Indeed, even the mythical figures, near mythical figures, we think of George Washington, uh, for example, uh, you know, who, who valiantly fought on behalf of the, of the United States and endured privations and so forth and helped led this country to victory. Well, when people think about George Washington, uh, usually the thing they think about are his faults or his flaws. He was a slave owner. He was a, in other words, it seems like everybody is being pulled down to a common denominator. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. After all, they are humans. Um, I saw this, uh, I was reading a book, um, If You Can Keep It, which is a book on politics um, by, uh, what's his name, who wrote Bonhoeffer? Eric Metaxas, and he has this story, he's running through Central Park, he lives in Manhattan, and if you've gone through Central Park, it's this beautiful park, it was created in 1850, it's like 800 acres. And there are all these little winding paths and there's all these statues and busts of heroic figures that you can go and you can see. So for instance, on uh, 72nd Street, there's an, uh, a huge uh, raised statue of Daniel Webster, the great orator and political uh, statesman. 
there's a couple of statues of Christopher Columbus. There's this uh, particular area called Literary, Literary Row where there's Shakespeare and Robert Burns and Walter Scott. And then there's Beethoven and uh, Schiller. And there are all of these great, great figures before. Uh, and over uh, on Fifth Avenue, you've got the inventor Samuel Morse. And very near to him, William Wilberforce, which is actually who has the biggest statue in all of Central Park, the great emancipator. But what's very interesting is, is that a lot of these figures are from the 1800s. In fact, in the 1900s, statue production became less and less. The last oversized statue was done in 1959 of Hans Christian Andersen, the great author. But he's not on a, a, a tower, he's not a towering figure, he's on the ground. And he's made for the children to go, to go ahead and climb on. Since 1959, there has not been another statue in Central Park, except for one in 1994 of a, of a, a famous marathoner, a uh, marathoning coach named Fred Lebo. But he's not on a raised platform. He's right here and he's looking at his watch and he's a small man. It's a small statue. Why do I talk about this? Well, I think it's because it's a reflection of our cynical age. There are no longer any heroes to be lifted up. Um, it's that question authority. It's that, that everybody is doing some sort of power play, you know, between Vietnam and Watergate on, and on and on and on. If you read the news now, it's, it's almost like there's nothing, there's nothing um, that lifts the spirit. It's an age in which the ends justify the means. Even our superheroes now are dark, aren't they? Right? They adopt questionable means to do what they have to do. I think that this story touches on the problem with Israel at the time. It's a cynical leadership, isn't it? These people who are supposed to be the highest moral characters of Israel are using subversion and deception to try to trap Jesus in order to have him killed. And in their eyes, it's the right thing to do because the ends justify the means. And so I want to dig into this question because I think that it, it affects our hearts a lot more than we actually realize. Do the ends justify the means? Do the choices that we make and how we make them, if ultimately they lead to a good thing, allow us to live in that way? Do the ends justify the means? That's going to be my first point. But in my second point, I want to look at the figure of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ shows us the exact opposite. That rather than the ends justifying the means, it's the means that ultimately justify the ends. And finally, we're going to look at the question, how do we live our lives in such a way that the means justify the ends rather than the ends justify the means? Well, let's look at point number one little background to this sermon and what's going on. It's Holy Week, the Passover. Jesus has come into Jerusalem. Um, on Monday, he will be dead on Friday. It's most likely Wednesday. He has cleansed the temple. He has entered into it. 
and he is preaching the gospel. And he has effectively disarmed the leaders. Notice the leaders have been sort of, now they, they who have the army, they who have the power and authority are having to resort to trickery in order to try to bring Jesus down because he has been so powerful and effective. He has in essence taken over the temple. And so the leaders are desperate. They need a plan. And it needs to be a good one. Because they need to simultaneously uh, uh, lower the people's um, belief in this Jesus, his popularity. They need to bring him down. And they need to somehow incite Rome to kill him. So even if the people love him, if Rome kills him, well, then they can pin it on Rome, not on them. They need a plan. And so they came up with a solution. So they watched him and sent spies, verse 20, who pretended to be sincere, that they watched him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Now these spies pretending to be sincere, we think possibly, well, did they go out and did they hire thugs? Did they pick street people? No, these are, if you look at it, no, these are probably, uh, you know, junior type priests. These are considered righteous people who have been called to do a deceptive act for the good of Israel, right? Because they're pretending to be sincere. The Bible clearly says that that is a sin to lie, to deceive, but they're doing something that the priests are asking them to because it'll ultimately result in good because the ends justify the means. Now, why do the priests care so much about this Jesus? Why do they see him as such a threat? One of the things about the high priesthood that you need to understand is it was a heretical, excuse me, that's not the right word, hereditary, much better than heretical, it was a hereditary succession, right? The first priest was Aaron, and then his son, and so on and so on. So a high priest was supposed to reign for their lifetime, you know, maybe 30 years, and then it would get passed on. But since the Romans have come in, they've changed the whole thing. They took away the hereditary succession. They would still pick someone from the Levite family, but they would choose the person. In Herod's time, he actually chose six different high priests. And essentially, Herod had two objectives for the high priest. They were supposed to do two things. Number one, maintain order and peace. And number two, they were supposed to collect taxes. It was actually the Sanhedrin that collected the taxes. And so Herod would appoint people who were willing to do that. But you see, there was a bargain. You see, in return for doing that, keeping peace, collecting taxes, they got to keep the temple. They got to keep temple worship. And additionally, they were exempted from having to do outright worship of the emperor. They were called in, in Roman terms, uh, essentially what's a religio licita. Everybody else, every other culture, they had to worship the emperor, but the Jews did not. It was a bargain, if you will. And the Jews, the, uh, the ruling class, the leading class said, okay, because ultimately it was better for the temple uh, to stand and to not worship the emperor even if they had to do these other things. The ends justified the means. Well, back to the story. The plan to get Jesus 
was to get him on the issue of taxes. Over 300 years from 164 BC to 132 AD, there were 62 Jewish rebellions. And 62 of them, excuse me, 62 of them, every one of them started on the issue of taxes. The Jews hated paying taxes, and I'll explain why. Of those 62 rebellions, 61 of them started in Galilee, the place that Jesus was from. And so they saw Jesus as one of these Galileans, okay, who was on a tear. And so they came up with a plan. We're going to put Jesus in a catch-22. And we're going to ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And if he says no, the power of Rome is on him. Because he's acting seditiously, they're going to crush him just like they've crushed all those other rebellions. Uh, but uh, if he says yes, excuse me, if he says yes, Rome is going to do it. If he says no, he's going to lose status with the people. Because he's kowtowing just like everybody else. The people are ready to anoint him Messiah and King. And if he says, no, I, we have to continue to pay taxes, he's going to lose all of his energy with the people. And then we can take him out. And so they confront him. Verse 21 and 22. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They're laying on these platitudes. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, a couple more important terms. They asked the question, is it lawful to give tribute? There actually were about 12 different taxes that were levied upon the Jewish people. You didn't have to pay all of them. It depended on where you were. But there was one tax that everybody had to pay. In fact, everybody in the Roman Empire had to pay, and it was called tribute. It was simply a tax for taking up space and being alive. Okay, if you were alive, you had to pay tribute. And you had to pay tribute in Roman coin. And the Roman coin was the denarius. But the denarius, if you read on it, the inscription on the denarius said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, Caesar, son of the god Augustus. That was a graven image it was a coin that, ex that showed that, the, that there was a God and his name was Augustus. And it was, it was against the law, the Torah, to have graven images of a God. And so that's really the question. It's, the question is not about taxes. It's about is it lawful to use this denarii to pay tribute? Now the Sanhedrin were the ones that collected the taxes, right? So the Sanhedrin had already done it. They had made a compromise, right? They weren't having to overtly worship him. They were simply having to use the coin. What say you, Jesus? Jesus sees through their duplicity, doesn't he? Show me the denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Now I love he asks them and they pull it out of their pocket. In other words, why are you asking me this question? You already have made your decision, haven't you? Show me. Whose image and inscription? Well, it was Caesar and this language. Now, we hear this sermon and we always think that this sermon is about obeying authorities. Right? 
You're supposed to give to authorities. We think of Roman 13. What Jesus is really saying is obey the authorities and obey God. That's not the thrust of what this passage is about. It's not about obeying authorities. It's about the issue of repentance and worship. The better Greek translation would be this. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God what is his. I'll say it again. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's but give back to God what is God's. Now you see a Jew, when they heard the terms image and inscription, would immediately think of Genesis 1.26. That man and woman were made in the image of God. They were made in God's image. And indeed the inscription of God's word was written on their hearts. They were commanded to keep God's commandments and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. In other words, Jesus is saying to the Israelites, your image and your inscription belongs to God. See, they had trusted in Caesar, hadn't they? A deal had been struck. A bargain had been had. You'll go ahead and you can do have used coins like this and you can come under the authority of Rome and in return what they're going to give you is your temple and they're going to give you peace. And the leaders chose that deal, right? But ultimately in choosing that deal, the person that owned them or the country that owned them was Rome. See, the Bible said, keep no graven images. But they chose compromise over obedience. The means justified the ends. Or excuse me, the ends justified the means, didn't it? They. What they should have done, the reason Israel was in this problem in the first place, is because instead of obeying God's law, remember when God brought them into Israel, if you obey me, if you follow my commands, your enemies will fall before you. There will be peace in your land. But again and again, time and time again, Israel went off and worshipped other gods. And so they were put under the authority of other countries. They had chosen compromise over obedience. And so they made this deal. But what Jesus is saying is you need to repent. Repent in your hearts of trusting in someone else to deliver you and trust in me. Worship me only. The inscription, the image of who you are is me. Give back to Caesar your confidence in him and give to me your confidence and obedience and worship. We look at Israel but the Bible isn't simply about Israel, is it? It's about us. So we have to answer the question that Jesus asked to us. Whose seal and inscription are on you? Were we not made in the image of God? Has not God put his law on our hearts? How is it that we have a conscience and know right and wrong and what we ought to do and what we ought not to do? 
See, we too have desires for safety and destiny, a purpose to our life, glory and recognition and fame. These are not bad things. The question is simply this, where will we go to receive them? And Satan says to us, and if you don't believe in Satan or evil, I suggest you turn on the TV tonight. Let me use the world says to us, that's much more palatable. Hey, if you want these things, you need to play the game. Trust in the world, trust in me, and you will have them. Let's make a deal. So this is the way it works. Are you ready, women? If you're beautiful, you will receive fame and honor. Sounds nice. But in our culture and in our world, it's amazing how quickly beautiful becomes sexual. Right? That's what beauty is. And you need to play the game in order to receive fame. And so look at the magazine covers. Look at the articles. If you want to be recognized, if you want to be loved, this is who you have to be. And that is an outright lie from the pit of hell, by the way. Young women, women, don't believe that. So we play the game. Or how about this? If you want to have these things, destiny and purpose and glory, you need to have the life. You need to have the house. You need to have the 2.4 kids. You need to have the dog. Right? So this is a more genteel kind of life. This isn't cosmopolitan, it's southern living. And everything needs to be pretty, right? But the house that was big enough all of a sudden needs to move to this neighborhood and this neighborhood. It's not enough to have kids. They also have to do this and this and be this and this and so on and so on. And before you know it, it's never enough. And they own you. What about men? I'm generalizing here. This doesn't apply to everyone. You've got to be successful. You've got to get that job. And when you're in that job, when your boss tells you that you've got to take those shortcuts in order to make this work, that's the way the game is played. If you want to be somebody, you've got to play the game. If you want to have a name, if you want to have the car, if you want to have the possessions, so on and so on. Oh, and by the way, you've got to make it look easy. Love it and great neck, by the way. It's so easy, isn't it? Everybody's relaxed. We're at Panera after we're biking our 40 miles, right? It's easy. You've got to make it look easy. It's not easy, is it? You're stressed because you're an owned person. And the question is, where is God in all of this? Well, God's just part of the picture, right? The ends justify the means. I remember when I set off, I was working for a company, and I was a director in the company. It was a technology company. I started my own business of technology consulting. Continued to retain my old business as a client. Took on a new client. Didn't have a lot of clients in the beginning, but I had one big client, and they were paying me a lot of money. This client wanted to uh, do certain things. My first client, the one I worked for, was a regulatory type agency. They kept the rules. This other company wanted to change the rules. My two main clients, both paying me a ton of money. 
and they're, they were a little bit conflicting. It wasn't black and white, a little gray though. What was I to do? New business. Started lobbying one agency in terms of for some rule changes. And then the question came, is this other company a client of yours? Yes, they are. You know, no one ever sets out to have an affair. No one ever sets out to become a corrupt politician. No one ever sets out. But decisions determine destinations. And the way of the world is the ends justify the means. So what's your deal? What's your world? Yeah, I'm a Christian. But my crowd, they love to party. They love to get together and they love to take it right to that edge, right? Pretty soon everybody's drunk. And you know what happens when you drink too much? The mouth starts to run. I don't want to be too different from them. I just need to make my Christianity conform, if you will. What Jesus is saying is you can't have both. You have to decide. Whose portrait and inscription are on you? This leads me to my second point. Jesus is the only one that has demonstrated the means justify the ends. I love these spies, by the way. Teacher, we know that you teach what is right in accordance with the truth. All of these various things. You know, the truth of the matter is they weren't buttering him up. They were counting on him being himself so he would answer honestly. Oh yeah, he's going to trap himself because he's so high and mighty. In other words, he doesn't play the game like we do and that's going to be his downfall. He's not savvy. He doesn't show partiality. And he teaches the way of God in accordance with the truth. They're counting on it because honesty loses in their culture. But Jesus is playing by different rules, isn't he? Whose coin and inscription, he asks. See, we were all made in the image of God. But Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of God. He's not made in the image of God. He is the image of God. If you were to pull out a quarter and look at it, all of these quarters have come from a master die. Just one that was made in the beginning. And from that, some other sub-masters and all the quarters were printed from them. Jesus is the image of God that we were all printed from. It is his very nature to be the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, as Hebrews 1.15 tells us. And so, Jesus cannot help but be who he is. And so in John 8, as he said, and he who sent me is with thee, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always glorify the God, God my Father. 
because I am the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. But Jesus must come to earth. He must live as a man. The, in the image of God must live as one made in the image of God. He must be tested. And so he goes to the desert, doesn't he? And the serpent comes. Are you hungry? Look, just tell these stones to become bread. Jesus is essentially being tested. Where is my provision? Is it in man or is it in God? Throw yourself down from the temple and God will lift you up. Where is my safety? Worship me and all of these kingdoms will be yours. Where is your power? See, he's walking through the same things that we do. And this is the final test or the second to final test. The final is when he walks to the cross. Because right now, Jesus has taken over the establishment. He's in charge. He's in the temple. The priests are thrown out. A word from Jesus and they'll actually go stone the priests. The truth of the matter, my friends, is success is often a far better test of who you are than failure. Because it's in success that you discover who you truly are. Right now, Jesus can take the reins if he wants, answer savvily, and hold on to power. But Jesus came to do the Father's will. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus came to rescue us, the, one, the imprints of his nature. And to do that, he has to die. And so Jesus chooses the path that leads to death. Jesus never had to give back to God because he never took his life away from him. And so he didn't give the people what they wanted. And ultimately, on Friday, they'll be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. By every standard and measure of the world, Jesus' ministry was a complete failure on Friday. I mean, think about it. He's led to nothing. He's crucified, naked, on a cross. He's crushed. His people deny him. All is lost and have failed. But to Jesus and to God, the means justify the ends. He was raised to life because no fault was found in him. He was made the true king because he demonstrated obedience. And through that, he has rescued hundreds of millions who have put their faith in him. It's Christ who is our life. Remember a story of a boy once put together a little toy ship. Spent hours and hours and hours to create one of those beautiful sailing masted schooners. And it was time and he went and he put it in the water. Had little sails and everything. Couldn't swim. Before he knew it, water, uh, air took that boat and it floated away from him. He was crushed. He had put his heart into it. He had created it out of love. So by his surprise, when he was walking down the street, he looked in a shop and he saw his very ship in the window. He went in and he said, that's my ship. And the man said, no, I'm afraid it's mine. Somebody sold it to me and if you want it, you have to buy it back. 
despite the justice, the injustice of it all, he loved that ship. And so he worked and he saved. And at a certain point, he came and he put his money down on the table and he bought that ship. And as he was walking out, he said to that ship, you're mine twice. For I made you first and I bought you back again. The only truth, mistruth about that story is that the ship never left by accident as if out of the grasp of Christ. We left on our own. But Christ bought us back because he refused to play the game. See, with God, the ends never justify the means. So we have to focus on the means and let God take care of the ends. What about me? What about you? You may say to me, Carlos, you don't understand. I'm, I'm caught. I can't leave. I'm ensnared in my world. It would be death to go ahead and break away. My coin is covered in mud. Jesus said, I can clean it up. It's still there. I made you. And I bought you back. You're playing a losing game that you can never win. What you have to do is stop the game. The means justify the ends. And Christ is the only means that will bring us to the end. It's not your obedience, it's not your beauty, it's not your power, it's not your holiness, it's the rescue. So are you bought? Yes. By who? Are you owned? Yes. By whom? Christ alone. By faith alone. Final point, how do we live this way? Living in the path of God. The ways of God work in a higher way. An unseen way. A way we can't understand. So how do we possibly live as if the means justify the ends? Live a life of faith. The first thing is this. When you entrust your heart and your destiny to God, when you put it in his hands, it's only then that you begin to have peace. Because everywhere else, it can be taken away from you in a heartbeat, in a phone call. It was Paul that said, I know whom I have believed, and I am I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what I've entrusted to him. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which has no understanding, but must be controlled by the bit or bridle. God says, if you trust me, if you make me your means and obedience to my word, I will be with you. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Well, I don't know the path. All you need to know is a step. And God always gives us a step, by the way. He always gives us enough. And that step is trust in Him. We're going to have to live different from the world. His word, obedience to Him, surrender to Him is the path 
and is the way. It's not a technique. It's just obedience and trust in Christ. And we're going to need each other for that. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us spur one another on to love and good deeds. This isn't a solitary race. We're going to have to watch our life and doctrine closely. We're going to have to watch what we watch. Are we going to listen constantly to the ways of the world or the ways of our Savior? We're going to have to trade our lifestyle for a life. I'm going to say that again. You're going to have to trade your lifestyle for a life. I don't know what the end looks like for you. But I do know that God said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. And when you decide to live by means, meaning obedience to me and worship, I will get you to where you are supposed to go. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So what's got to change in your life? Are you still playing the part of the chief priests, the Pharisees? Are there no heroes in your life? Or have you traded all of that for one solitary single figure God his son Jesus Christ who is your image with God the ends never justify the means so focus on the means and let God take care of the ends and you will live a good life a glorious life that will be reflect the radiance of the one who made you let's pray Jesus, I thank you that you are the towering hero, the one who never equivocated, the one who never gave in. You lived by the means of obedience and honor to you. You lived by the word. You demonstrated to me how I am to live. God, help me to stop making bargains with things and people and idols that are crushing me and owning me, but help me to surrender to you and to you alone, regardless of what the future holds. For I know my destiny is secure in you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.